before I pass it over to Steven, uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Alessio, I'm the founder of, and CEO of Forward Fooding. Um, we established this business about four years ago, really with one very simple mission, as we believe that collaboration between uh, corporates and startups can actually make a difference and solve our, some of our biggest challenges of, uh, of the food system. Um, and so we set the business with the vision of really uh, bringing the best of both worlds when it comes to uh, pushing and fostering innovation forward. Uh, the ability on the one end of startups to actually innovate and create meaningful innovation for consumers with the ability of corporates uh, to actually uh, scale some of this innovation. And so through Food Tech Data Insight and uh, our global network of uh, startup companies, um, we really try to foster you know, meaningful collaborations that can contribute to creating a brighter future of food. Uh, yep. Before I pass it to you, Steven, I know you have a, a long actually bio, which I'm going to skip. Uh, to allow you actually to talk, to talk about yourself and, uh, and growing underground. Um, so for, I know that the company, you know, has been, uh, we actually use it as an example in, uh, in some of our workshop and reports. Uh, uh, and we always mention, you know, this funny fact of, uh, uh, the, of you setting up, you know, the, the farm actually in a World War II bomb shelter uh, beneath the streets of London as uh, it's kind of to explain, you know, also to some of our corporate uh, customers that sometimes, you know, really uh, <laughs> entrepreneurs, you know, do funny things, but uh, I guess, you know, they actually have a meaning. So maybe we can start from there, Stephen, if you can introduce uh, for, for those who don't know you, you know, briefly yourself and, uh, and actually if you can tell us a little bit about the genesis of the company as well yeah. that you co-founded, yeah? Thank you, Alessia. Um well, the, the company is actually Zero Carbon Food Limited, um, and, and, and our first brand was Growing Underground. And um, the concept, and, the, and it was all kind of born out of research in 2012 and 2013 when, when me and my business partner were originally looking at this. But, um, but first of all, let me just address the name in terms of, like, we, we have vertical farming, we have urban farming. Uh, however, like many others, we, like, we, we refer to it as controlled environment agriculture. Uh, and the main premise is about forensically controlling the environment from the point that the seeds are sown or all the way to the point that they're harvested uh, or, or packed. Uh, and this is ensuring the plants receive, receive exactly what they require in terms of nutrient, light, uh, and the growing environment as well. Uh, and inevitably, forensically controlling the environment like that means you get an increase in the yield per square meter and you also get a reduction in the growing days. And, and this kind of brings me back to, to, to the reason for going underground is we were looking at academics were writing about vertical farms in office blocks and in warehouses. And, and when you think about when you're trying to control an environment and you're trying to do that to a, a forensic level, uh, actually doing that 20 meters in high in a warehouse is, is, is very, very challenging and very difficult. Um, but what somebody had done with this underground World War II air raid shelter <clears throat> is a World War II air raid shelter. It's 70,000 square feet. It had 8,000 people down there during the war. Uh, and so it's a huge industrial scale size. Uh, but effectively, whether it's minus five or plus 30 outside or upstairs, it's a constant 14, maybe 15 degrees. It may fluctuate by a degree. And the humidity stays the same. The airflow is consistent and, and inevitably have a very uh, efficient and effective ventilation system. 
uh, when you had 8,000 people down there during the war. Um, so when, you, when people kind of say, well, why have you built a farm underground? Well, the, the actual reason for doing it uh, uh, was the fact that it lent itself to, as a perfect growing environment. And, and controlling that environment, it's so much easier to do when your parameters are set at consistent humidity and a consistent temperature. So as crazy as it sounds in terms of building a farm underground, uh, it's, it's actually a perfect site for growing. That is awesome. Thanks, Stephen, for that. Again, uh, this is where, you know, I think when we explain it to some of our corporate customers, the first reaction is like, oh, why did they use, you know, uh, <laughs> a yeah. former bomb shelter, right? But actually, there is a, a scientific also explanation for it, which is, uh, it, which, as you said, you know, it makes a perfect environment to actually grow things in a controlled uh, yeah. environment. So that is awesome, Stephen. Thanks for that. Um, so we've done actually a, a few webinars also in the past about vertical farming and uh, to me one of the key benefits uh, to the eyes of consumer is that you can actually see the product the, the product provenance right um, and i know that you also have started uh, uh, giving us also tours of your underground farm recently um yep. what is your the role of transparency in your business and if i can add on that how do you envision actually the role of transparency um, to be played out in the in the broader industry, also as uh, I think you know some of the the effects of the pandemic have also highlighted um, the importance of uh, of transparency. I, yeah, I I think well, tours was actually pre-COVID, so sadly we're not doing tours anymore, as you can imagine. Um, but transparency, provenance, trust. Uh, all of these are kind of key in terms of the, that relationship between grower, grower producers and consumers. Um, if you go all the way back to 1990, we had BSE, we had Mad Cow disease in the UK, we had 2013, we had the horse meat scandal. There's not always clear labeling, whether it comes to salt content or fat content. So um, transparency uh, is for us, we, we demonstrate it through accreditations like the BRC accreditation. Uh, through red tractor accreditations um, and and but moving forward th there's a number of metrics that we will continue to publish and whether that's uh, uh, and, and sorry start to publish but also kind of moving forward it will be whether around carbon uh, carbon usage and waste uh, and significantly at the moment as well diversity race and gender certainly through our, our executive teams our management teams uh, and our board and throughout the business as well. Uh, and then ethically through, through uh, we're going through the process of B Corps accreditation uh, in terms of ethics. I just don't think there's anything out there in terms of uh, a standard that gives you that transparency, it gives you that transparency as much as kind of B Corps, but consumers kind of expect that transparency. We're very open apart from physical tours. Uh, we make ourselves available, whether it's kind of engaging with consumers in, in, in many different forums. So, uh, and also when you're, you're bringing a new technology, you're bringing a new way of growing, people are fearful of, uh, uh, or can be fearful of, many times we got asked the question like, is it genetically modified? And it's like, well, we don't really have GM in the UK at all. And so it's certainly, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's certainly something that we always make sure, and, and we need to make sure as an industry, uh, that we maintain that transparency uh, and, and, and like I said provenance as well people want to know where their food comes from so yeah uh, I, I think 
there's a these days kind of you or certainly you could go back a, a very short period of time um nobody knows where their food's coming from it's literally bad bagged up and and it appears in the uh, appears in the supermarkets we've had some supermarkets who have been kind of it's been highlighted and they've been almost caught printing fake farms as a brand on there uh, i'd like to kind of bring that kind of provenance or and, and that connection back to the actual kind of farmer but there's certainly a lot of a lot of products these days where you turn around the back of the packaging and and there's there's quite a lot of products out there where you can actually be you see a picture of the farmer himself so uh these are the kind of connections but in the future i see us like qr codes on the back of the pack that will take you through to a picture of greg our grower who grew that crop that week and and that's where i kind of see that kind of connection evolving forward as well as publishing metrics like i said of course wow that's that's it's fascinating and can you expand also on how then you envision actually consumers to kind of be at the forefront of this movement pushing i guess for more transparency i mean do you see that as a consumer-led uh sort of uh trend or do you actually envision that most food companies will actually need to adapt and kind of creating provenance as a new standard um you you, you certainly coming out of some focus groups uh not run by ourselves but uh run through our, our our corporate investor um provenance uh, uh trust um um all like these play a significant part in people's uh buying choices and the consumer uh, and the consumer's reason for purchasing a product. So I, I think it's going to be consumer led. I think that's going to continue, going to continue with that push. Um, but I also think there is a desire to make it more transparent. Uh, people uh, uh, and certainly farmers and growers understand that there's a marketing opportunity with that in terms of uh, in terms of being open and being honest and transparent about, uh, about where the product's coming from, how it's grown and what's going into it as well. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. I mean, we, we hear the same things actually from other um, vertical farming companies that we interviewed in the past. Again, it's a consumer-led on the one end, but it, it's also been uh, um, kind of driven by the desire of some of these companies to actually be more open and transparent about how they actually produce the food. Um, fantastic. And uh, out of interest, uh, how has the London public responded to eating greens that were actually grown under their feet? Yeah. Uh, what kind of feedback and engagement do you receive from your consumers? I mean, you mentioned earlier that some of them are still trying to rub their head around whether it's GMO or not and how you actually can make, you know, the same greens in, uh, in, a, in a former bomb shelter. But um, what was your first react, the first reaction, I guess, when you first launched? Well, there was a couple of elements to it. One, we very early on, we, we approached a, a two Michelin star chef, Michel Rue Jr., to, to kind of, uh, join the business, it, uh, it certainly help us with product development. The guy's got an amazing palette, helping us with flavors, the quality of the product. And I kind of expected him to say, unless it's grown under French sun in French soil, uh, yeah, in, in the south of France, I'm not interested. And, and his reaction was kind of, well, it, it's the same as a glass house. It's just kind of extending the season. It's just a, a glass, is, it's just a way of extending season using a, a form of technology at that stage. And, and we're just kind of taking, taking that forward. And I, ultimately though, it comes down to quality and it comes down to flavor. If, if the quality and the flavor is there, then, then the consumer will kind of buy it and return and buy, and buy it again. But we, 
people get on the tube like we we like our, our tunnels are are built in the style of a tube tunnel it's an air shelter but it's built in that style so again we had concerns that people on the tube they see rats and mice and grease and dust and and obviously there was a concern that we might be kind of growing in some kind of environment like that um but obviously there was a a, a lot of press that we do we can you can see we put we've literally put a photograph of our farm on the pack to highlight kind of the cleanliness and and how kind of sterile the site is as such um so yeah it's 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 uh, uh making sure that we kind of give give that customer the confidence but we get that feedback in many different ways inevitably through our social media comms uh you get that instant feedback from consumers which is uh, I'll touch wood, but majority of the like amazing feedback, whether it's food bloggers using our products in different ways. Um, consumers these days are very quick to come and tell you. It, uh, and, and I expect it as well. I expect people to, if there's a problem with our product in any way, shape or form, I expect people to kind of, uh, I, 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 if, they're, if they're parting with their hard-earned cash to buy our product, I want to make sure they've got an amazing product that, that does what it says it's going to do in terms of the shelf life and how long it's going to last and the expectation it's going to last in their fridge. It's going to maintain the flavor. It's going to maintain that quality. Uh, and if it doesn't, we want to know about it. Um, and then online retailers like Ocado, again, you've got the review system on there. Uh, we consistently achieve kind of four or five stars on there. And, and, and it, again, that gives you that instant feedback as well. So these are great feedback loops for us in terms of uh, we, our product grows in about 10 to 15 days, but, or yeah, probably about 10 days by the time we've grown it, packed it, or gone through germination, we've packed the product, it's out, it's consumed within the kind of shelf life of the product. We're going to get that feedback very rapidly. Uh, and should that highlight any issues within kind of our growing processes or QA, QC checks, then, then again, we can address those. But um, yeah, it, it, we, we get, like I said, instantaneous feedback and and majoritively it's it, it's positive that's awesome that's awesome Stephen. and out of interest uh, building on what you were just uh, talking about um how important was for you at the beginning to actually build a sort of a test and learn look to ensure that you could funnel you know this feedback in and actually improve the product substantially and deliver actually i guess another uh, generation of product to, to the same consumers to then see actually if uh, if it was improved at least in their perception. Well, uh, we 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 took the approach of of applying uh, supplying food service first. So we 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 were taking our product. We built some relationships. So 2012 to 2014 was business planning. Richard, my business partner, was looking at the technologies, LED kind of uh, LEDs, building management systems, hydroponics, aeroponics, or like all of the kind of growing in tech side of it, sensors, data capture, data management and analysis. Uh, and I was looking at the market and, and, and whether that's uh, the, how fresh produce was developing, how like, people eating in a different way, aging populations, like all, all of that good stuff. The first bit was also establishing relationships through New Covent Garden Market and through food service. So we're supply, we started supply in 2015 down to New Covent Garden Market. The, those guys down there, probably 20 to 30 food service distributors, and they distribute to thousands of restaurants and event caterers and contract caterers across London every single day. If the product's not good enough, they can't sell it to their clients, to their chefs. 
Therefore, the feedback loop in terms of what we're supplying down there is pretty much instantaneous. It's, it's at the point of delivery. It's kind of, it's, it's either good enough or it's not. It's out of spec or it's in spec. Um, maybe after a couple of days, it might have been the shelf life didn't hold up. It wasn't good enough. That allowed us to refine our product, refine our practices over a, that was over a so 15 to Jan 17. So over a two year period, or it was actually about 18, 18 month, 16 month period. We could refine that product whilst in the background, working on our BSC, BRC accreditations, working on filter for, for Marks and Spencer's, Red Tractor, gaining the retail accreditations that were, were required to supply retail. And then we knew when we launched into retail in January 17, that we had an absolute solid product where we were supplying the best product that we possibly could to the retail market. So we did some great learnings in that stage. That's great. And I guess it was pivotal from the very beginning to put that in place, because otherwise you couldn't really figure out what was the, what were the bits that needed to be tweaked, right? Uh, in the first place. That's fantastic. Um, just, just to kind of, the retailers wanted to see that. They wanted to see that it had been supplied through restaurants and, 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 and they, they, they don't want to put a product on their shelves or in their warehouses that isn't going to sell effectively. Um, so they, they want to make sure that there is a market for it. And, and, and since then, since Jan, so that was Jan 17, we've literally delivered a product every single day for the last nearly four years. And so, and it's one of the things that we're kind of really proud of is that consistency of supply, that consistency of quality uh, and that consistency in flavor that leads to people kind of coming back and buying the products again. And again, that growth in revenue is also part of that feedback that you're kind of doing things right in terms of your customers. Of course, yeah, yeah. And I guess again, for retailers, consistency is key, isn't it? Because uh, yeah. they need and, to have... And the consistency in the supply chain. Uh, it, 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 you can't have any... Having an empty shelf on, uh, uh, within a, uh, within a, uh, a retailer, but as we've seen recently, really doesn't go down that well. Um, yeah. But effectively, they've got X amount of space within a store, uh, and they want to make sure that every square foot or every square meter of that, 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 uh, uh, that supermarket is generating revenue. So an empty space that says growing underground salad would not go down very well at all. So, and again, so to, like for us as a small business, to have that consistency of supply, but also keeping that consistent quality, we're, we're probably one of the only companies globally that have actually done that. Yeah, 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 that's awesome. And uh, building on actually what you were just discussing, what we were just discussing about also the benefits, I guess, of, uh, um, vertical farming uh, to the consumer's eyes in terms of, of provenance and transparency. Uh, I know that on the other hand, some people question how sustainable, you know, vertical farming can be when operated at, at mass scale, right? Um, so out of interest, how do you measure actually your farm's emission? And is there a set of devices techniques that you use to actually grow your greens sustainably as you also scale, I guess, production? Yeah. So actually, we like we we utilize renewable energy. So we buy renewable energy from a, a renewable energy supplier, um, and and we're going through the process now of carbon accounting. So literally from from the all the way from building the farm to every single product that we've ever supplied, uh, and going forward as we supply, uh, offsetting to achieve carbon neutrality all the way back to the inception of the company. So there's car achieving carbon neutrality. The, the measuring that through, uh, uh, we, there's a number of different companies that we're, we're kind of discussing with uh, the, the, the 
uh, the actual assessment to, 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 to value the amount of carbon that you've actually used uh, and making sure that we, we use one of the uh, most robust and kind of credible schemes that are out there. Um, but that's how, we, that's how we measure the emissions and then the other is waste as well uh, and closing that loop on waste. And so the next step for us as well is, is moving to uh, like slightly different substrate uh, and then also looking at ways that we, we move that waste. So at the moment it goes to uh, a CHP uh, energy project down in South London, uh, but the, the, the next phase for us is it going straight into anaerobic digestion. Okay, so you're trying to get also the circularity, I guess, of the... Yeah, so, so, so Farm, farm 2.0 for us it will involve uh, a completely closed new product. So it will be carbon neutral, it will be water neutral, it will be ready to eat, uh, it will be higher in nutrition. Uh, but at the same time, it will be part of a closed loop system as well. Fantastic. Great. And uh, you mentioned earlier that it, it took you a few years, I guess, to get a, to, to establish the right uh, relationships, also to get in front of retailers and distributors, right? Can you expand a little bit on how do you actually collaborate with retailers and distributors? What are the process? What was the process of bringing your products to market? And how do you also serve clients operating in the hospitality sector? Because I know that, you know, there is a whole spectrum of uh, actors out there. Some, some that you actually serve directly, some yeah. others that you actually reach through distributors. Can you just elaborate on your process, um, actually establishing this relationship and also how you then uh, practically op operate? So in, in 2015, late 2015, we, we took an investment with it from a corporate partner uh, and, and they had a massive amount of retail experience. They, they, they generate about half a billion a year in, in, in revenues and sterling. And, and, and again, they kind of, whilst our focus at that stage was on food service and making sure that we were penetrating the food service market, they brought us that by, through collaboration with them. They kind of brought us to, to the, to, to, into the eyes of the retailers and it allowed us to renounce supplying so we started off with Ocado, but then kind of Waitrose, Marks and Spencers, Farm Drop to get it to kind of the front door of Londoners, Amazon Fresh, Whole Foods, uh, but now into kind of Tesco's as well. And so we find ourselves in the majority of kind of UK retailers. We've penetrated the market with, uh, and penetrated kind of retail with our, our brand and our product. So again, it's through kind of uh, relationship, traditional relationship building, having a, a point of difference in terms of flavor and, and bringing something, uh, as somebody said to me once, there's very little innovation in salad. Uh, so actually kind of taking a product that, that had these micros, uh, microgreens in there, with packed full of flavor at the same time uh, as having kind of a base salad product with them as well. Uh, it allowed us to bring something new to the market um and, and 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 that kind of established those relationships from there so um i think but that's kind of allowed us to then build a broad segment of customers so we have our food service segment we have our retail segment but we then supply food producers we supply food processors uh and also now we we also supply and have made a move into kind of botanicals and cosmetics um, so we're supplying a, a, a sustainable range of, of products that will be launched in uh, at the end of next year. Uh, and that will be a global launch of a 100% carbon neutral sustainable brand of products. Uh, and I kind of, I'm under an NDA, so I can't say much more than that. But what we found in this space is anybody with anything natural in their supply chain is, is, is finding it more challenging 
to a source a consistent product, a consistent quality of product at a consistent price. Um, and, and that's of their natural raw materials, whatever it may be. So again, it's, we've gone from kind of looking at food to actually anyone with anything natural in their supply chain is looking at this technology to address some of the challenges they've got in sourcing and, and, and fluctuations in cost. So we find ourselves kind of moving into these different segments and, and, and spreading around uh, uh, the, the ability to kind of, yeah, deploy this technology into different customer segments. Super fascinating. And I'm sure, Stephen, that you've never anticipated that this is where you're, we're going to take the business moving forward, right? I mean, at least from the very beginning. You no, said <laughs> the, the concept of me being involved in anything that may be a hair care product is beyond belief. So, yeah. <laughs> Which, again, I guess is uh, what do I, I, it was just funny for me to hear that, you know, you spent two years building a business plan, which I think is fair enough, right? And yeah. first, uh, also to raise uh, uh, capital. And I guess, you know, it was pretty capital intensive to build a farm, you know, in a form of bomb shelter, you had to have it, you know, in place. But then uh, adding those, these revenue streams, I guess, in that business plan was probably irrealistic, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But we've done things a slightly different way. And, and we always felt that we could never go out and sell people our technology our operating system for running a farm and the process and procedures and saying, buy this farm and buy this technology from us, unless we proved that it worked in a marketplace that we could actually grow a product at the right price point and sell it at the right price point. Uh, certainly in, a, in the UK market as well, which is one of the most competitive markets in the world in terms of food. Um, it was it was almost uh, uh, it'd be arrogant to think that we could go out and say buy our farm unless we could prove that we were actually doing it ourselves. And even though we've kind of based our technology underground, future farms are going to be up, uh, above ground, but but just in insulated buildings. Uh, and we're just taking our learnings from that and deploying it into uh, in, into sites above ground. And so yeah, it's 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 it, for us the next steps is literally just kind kind of taking that technology from underground but moving it into these different customer sectors, like I said, whether it's processors, whether it's producers, whether it's pharmaceutical companies, or, or, or whether it's into traditional retail and, and food service. Yep. Fantastic, Stephen. And actually building on this, um, what was the hardest actually challenge for you to, uh, to overtake when it came to actually bringing on board all these different clusters of clients? I guess... Uh, or in other words, did you develop like a specific kind of like onboarding process for each cluster or were actually some sort of like common path between, you know, uh, the different onboarding processes? Uh, I th to be honest, I think it's a, it, 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 a very traditional kind of sales process, identifying people's needs and, 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 and addressing those needs and, and having, a, uh, having a solution uh, for, for, for those customer needs. But it's a very similar process across uh, across each of the customer segments. Most people are facing the same challenges, whether it's pharmaceutical, whether it's a fresh, whether it's fresh produce, it, it comes down to consistency of supply, consistency of product, uh, and, and, a, and a consistency in the price. We, uh, and, and even from, even from the UK season to the, like, to, from us transitioning from UK to the Spanish season, we will get a fluctuation in that price, as you can imagine. Uh, that's not borne out in the costs on the shelves within retail, but that's certainly felt uh, amongst the growers. Great. That's, uh, that's also uh, interesting to hear because uh, I thought that, you know, dealing with different actually type of, uh, 
of clients would also entail, you know, adapting, but it sounds like there is a quite a bit of overlap also in terms of needs. So yeah, it's really, I, I guess. I think, from, I think moving into the pharmaceutical and botanical markets, again, that's sli uh, slightly different when you're, you're, you're looking at dressing kind of raw ingredients for pharmaceutical products. Uh, however, uh, it, it's a very similar process in terms of the technology that we have, how we kind of capture that, the data from the growing environment, how we apply that to uh, future cycles of growth, how we refine that, how we increase yield, how we reduce growing days, whilst maintaining quality. It's kind of very similar kind of pro process each time. Interesting, and I guess uh, uh, in, in this specific uh, example, again, data is probably playing a big role, I'm assuming, in terms of like also giving back some of this data to your customers, if that also is part of, uh, of your serving. Uh, is that, would you say that actually data is kind of becoming a, a sort of, a, of an additional currency that gets traded along with the, with the goods that you're, or services you provide to your customers? Yeah, the, the data plays a key key role in 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 all of this, and it's not just uh, the one thing. I, I I think at some stage I I heard somebody mentioning blockchain when it came to vertical farms, and I'm still baffled how blockchain plays a part. I do understand in terms of end-to-end -end transparency, uh, but uh, yeah, it, I think it's usually to, to to add a zero to a valuation somewhere. Um, but no, for 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 me, uh, data plays that key part. Um, we saw sensor technology, the cost of sensor technology reducing. We saw the cost of storing data uh, and analyzing data reducing. You look at AI and, and, and ML that really does kind of play a role in, in taking all of the different variables. And, and we put a lot of quantitative, uh, uh, qualitative variables within that as well. So it, it might be your, your humidity, it might be your pH levels, it might be your, your temperature, your CO2 levels, your air movement, air velocity, all of that but it's also linked in with your microbiology as well and, 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 and what results you have from microbiology and water testing. That's also linked in with kind of hygiene regimes and cleaning regimes and all of these elements play a part of, uh, of developing what we would call that kind of almost that operating system. Uh, not entirely sure that answered your question, but anyway. Yeah, yeah, it does, it does, it does. I mean, again, it's, uh, it's I guess it's your bread and butter, right? On the one end, but then, uh, you kind of process it to provide actually insights to your customers, yeah. which uh, is then event eventually like the form of data that they, they would want you to provide, right? Absolutely. And, and there's a whole engine, I guess, behind it, right? <laughs> that runs in the background. And, and we, we started by working with some of the, yeah, some of the smartest kind of minds in, in, in the UK, if not the world. And, and that was, we worked with the Institute of Civil Engineering at Cambridge, uh, working with those guys to understand the materials that the tunnel was made of, what effect external environment in terms of temperature, water, precipitation, uh, when I say water, I mean rain, precipitation, what effect that may have on the external tunnel, what that effect that then has on the farm, uh, what that's allowed us now to do is develop a model where we can literally walk into a new building, put some sensors in there over a very short period of time, understand exactly what the capex would be to furnish that building with a vertical farm uh, or controlled environment farm uh, and what the opex would be from our knowledge of operating this uh, operating our farm for the last four years what the opex costs would be built in with with those two elements so we now literally have that ability to offer that service to say well 
we can literally, if you want to go and do this and you want to build a farm and you want to use our technology, we can tell you exactly what it's going to cost and we can tell you exactly what the, could, the returns are going to be at EBITDA level, which is exactly what people want to show that there is a return out of doing this. Of course, of course, which I guess, again, at first was almost impossible for you to estimate, but now that you have data points, you can actually be yeah. very precise. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, let's get into the COVID, let's say, new normal question. It's, yeah. uh, it's a classic. Um, can, you, can you tell us, uh, have your farm operations continued during the COVID-19 pandemic? And what would you say was the biggest, I guess, impact um, on your business, meaning uh, was your business COVID proof or you felt that uh, you could have done things differently to actually make it uh, COVID proof? I would never be as kind of bold or as arrogant to say that we are COVID proof, uh, especially with a, a virus that is kind of ever evolving. Um, I, the one thing I would say though is I'm extremely proud of our, our operations team um and and the way that they immediately identified how we would continue our operations and and we we immediately established um we immediately established uh, separate teams uh so there was no crossover between the two um anybody else that was had the ability to work from home immediately work from home uh and then should anybody on one of those teams end up going down with covid then we were able to backfill that shift um, luckily, touch wood, so far we've been uh, extremely lucky uh, and, 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 and we've had some people that have been, looked like they might have been symptomatic but no one's actually kind of tested positive and people have uh, spent time away from the business. Um, but we've continued supplying every single day uh, all the way through this. We've showed a robustness uh, in our operational model as well as the model in itself. Um, and yeah, it, it's something I'm extremely, uh, and like I said earlier, we, we've maintained, and for such a small business, we a delivery every single day of the uh, every single day of the year for the last four years, which is which is something we're all extremely proud of. So I guess uh, it was effectively COVID-proof in a way, meaning you haven't you haven't discontinued you know operations for a single day. But of yeah, course. Uh, yes, uh, but like we've seen with, with previous uh, pandemics, there there's the opportunity for a second wave. Uh, uh, I, and so I wouldn't like to, 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 to say anything now and, and because I think that would come back and bite me on the arse. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, Stephen. But again, I guess uh, you, you have to be proud of the fact that, you know, in, in, in the whole pandemic, you know, you were actually able to serve your customers Absolutely. throughout the time. So that's no, actually... Extremely proud of our operational team, the way that they came together, the way that they overcome it. Um, obviously, we... we we certainly immediately initiated and highlighted the cycle to work scheme that the government provided in the UK. Um, so people didn't have to, to, to come in on public transport. We looked at what was best in terms of uh, was getting a taxi, but actually putting somebody in close proximity within a taxi. Was it best to be on a tube or was it best to walk? Most people actually live very close to where our operations are. Um, so, so, and, but then we, we did uh, staff surveys to make sure that how everyone was feeling. Uh, and, and certainly one of my concerns through this uh, is, uh, is mental health uh, and, and making sure that we're there for the people that have been working from home, that have been isolated as well, making sure that we're there to, to, to support from a, uh, that's the one thing that's missing is, and, and as human beings, we love to come together and, and we love to come together also in the workplace as well. And, and, and 
And that's the one thing that certainly a number of people are missing within the business. So we just need to make sure that we, we, we are mindful of that and, and address that as we go forward. Yeah. Fantastic, Stephen. We talked also in previous webinars about genetics for um, plants that have actually been grown in a control environment, right? Um, what would you say is the uh, most interesting food tech trends, maybe related to vertical farming? So let's make it specific uh, yeah. like that. Yeah, okay. Uh, to be honest, I think, uh, I think crops that are being developed specific for ver vertical farming is a very interesting area. Um, there's a couple of things that we're R&Ding at the moment that I'm not going to mention. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm all for collaboration, but I'm also <laughs> very much for commercial sensitivities. Um, yeah, there's a, a, but what we've done is just kind of give an example. We, we took an Innovate grant, uh, and I won't go into too much detail at this stage, but we, we took, and this was around water filtration, uh, looking at a number of, of different technologies from different industries uh, and one of them was like it was it was filtration from the swimming pool industry uh, and looking at how that could be utilized to actually make our, our water uh, filtration uh, more efficient. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 for me, it's about co-opting and adapting and stealing from different industries and being kind of open to that. Um, outside, of, outside of vertical farming, for me, uh, uh, the small robot company and, and, and what they're doing in terms of when you look at soil uh, and, and, and the challenges that we have with soil in, in terms of compacted land and, and, and runoff and everything that goes with soil. Uh, it's, it, you look at some studies that are out there, we have between 60 and 100 summers of soil left and, and that's not that long. And so companies like uh, uh, the small robot company where you can literally so because they're light and they're small robots that can operate in fields but they're so small that they can be solar powered and run by renewables then it's a really interesting company uh and then for me as well uh back to the 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 the, the ongoing conversation around food and, and and plastics and and for me we our product goes out in a renewable uh, uh, sorry in a recyclable plastic product um, but at the same time, there's people out there working on seaweed that can be converted into plastics or there was a, a French company that I came across recently turning some kind of enzymes and food waste that turns into plastic. For me, it's, it's the, that when that's available, there, there's products out there made from seaweed at the moment uh, that are not available at a commercial scale, but we're, we're only a very short step away from that be, being available in a kind of a, a large mother reel where we can make plastic packaging from it. Uh, make it completely closed loop, but then at the same time, make sure that we're packing a product. Everyone, like we get lots of people saying, well, why don't you just put it in egg cartons or something like that? It's like, because I, I would immediately add to the food waste issue. So it's kind of, we have to overcome this in a way uh, that, that isn't just kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Fantastic, Stephen. Uh, let me then, as I, before I cherry pick some, some questions, and uh, it's a pretty long <laughs> list, uh, maybe you can just uh, um, share with everyone what would be your one piece of practical advice um, you would give to someone starting out their entrepreneurial journey, let's say in food tech, you know, without making it too specific, I guess, uh, about vert building another vertical uh, uh, farm. <laughs> but in general, you know, if you could 
maybe looking back at the, when you started the business, if you could give yourself actually one practical piece of advice, what would that be? A piece of practical advice that I was lucky enough to, to, to actually uh, uh, have happen. Uh, but I'm looking at this through friends who I know are not in this position is find a co-founder, find, find a co-founder because doing it on your own, like doing it when it's the two of you, it's massively challenging as it is. Um, but I certainly know of people running their own uh, uh, sustainable businesses that would always say, I wish I had a co-founder. Uh, and, and for me, it's, 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 the way that you kind of bounce ideas off each other. Uh, I've, I've always kind of said any successful business is uh, uh, the company that makes less mistakes than their competitors. Mm -hmm. And for me, I believe that you make less mistakes if you've got a co-founder next to you and that you bounce these things off each other. So yeah, it's, 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 it's get a co-founder. And then the other one with food tech and, and ag tech at the moment is get involved. Like if you've got an idea, get involved because it's a really embryonic industry. Like even vertical farming, there's years of growth and consolidation and scale and like all of this over the next kind of 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, and we'll see lots of, lots of change and lots of, lots of movement uh, over the next five. Um, but there's so many elements to this industry that, uh, and there's lots, it's not the agriculture, like agriculture is kind of super unoptimized. And, and it's one of those industries that really lends itself to, 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 a, to, a, to a young breed of people coming in with a lot of fresh ideas uh, and putting it through a different optic and a different lens. And so, yeah, that, that's all I would say around kind of food tech and, and ag tech at this moment in time. And in terms of that entrepreneurial journey, find yourself a, 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 a co-founder. And my one last pet gripe is never, ever, ever pay for an accelerator program. <laughs> because if an accelerator program is any good whatsoever, they will not get the startup who are the people that need the money to pay for it. If they're any good, their investors will pay for it. So never, ever, ever pay for an accelerator program. I actually think it's immoral. It's immoral. <laughs> I love that. I, 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 can, I cannot agree more than with you on that. Uh, but I'm with you, I think uh, there are quite a, I have the feeling that a lot of the companies that then end up on accelerators with some exceptions are actually the ones who are not just good enough to, to do it on your own, on their own, right? Yeah. So um, I, I get that, you know, the kind of exchange of like equity, you know, for getting a program, but paying for a program, I, I just don't see it as a, as a viable also business model for the accelerators, to be honest, given. And even, and even the equity exchange is kind of, you, you give a percentage of equity and that accelerator program may see a liquidity event at say 10 years down the line. If ever. It, it's not a viable model for them to even take equity and generate revenue. So for me, it's kind of, I, I, I attended a, 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 an accelerator program. It was through the unreasonable group. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, it was funded by Barclays who were there, who were their, their co-partners in, 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 in that, uh, uh, in that program. And I've got a massive amount of value from it, but I've been approached by so many people in terms of paying to, to attend an accelerator program. It's kind of, if you, were, if you were actually good at what you were doing, you would either bring a client on board to fund the accelerator, or you'd be so good that investors would fund that accelerator with you because you're so good at finding startups. So yeah, it, it's my pet, pet gripe at the moment. So yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, fantastic, Stephen. Thanks, everyone, uh, for tuning in today. Um, and thank you, Stephen, actually, for joining us for such a fantastic interview uh, and sharing, actually, the story behind uh, your company and also some uh, great pieces of advice uh, to fellow entrepreneurs. We wish you are the growing underground and the zero carbon food uh, company uh, the best over the coming months. And hopefully, you know, also with the pandemic coming to an end, uh, everything is going to restart as a new normal. Thanks again, Stephen, for your time. This was brilliant. Dan has got my peas by the looks of things. That looks like pea shoots. Yeah. <laughs> Take care, guys. Thank That's you. So Take care, Stephen. Talk to you soon. Bye. Cheers. Bye.